This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, nearly every vocation, every job has some way of defining and measuring success, don't they? For example, when I worked uh, in sales back in the Motorola days, uh, success was measured by money, uh, by things like profit and revenue and margin. When I transitioned into business development and product management, it was, me- it was measured by content, right? The number of, of new features that we delivered in each software release, right? And every vocation has some sort of measure of success, right? If you're a student, it's grades. If you're in Hollywood, it's Oscars and box office revenue. If you're a professional athlete, it is winning championships and breaking records, and, and, and our raises, our bonuses, our commission, it's, it's all based on how well we did. And so when success is clearly defined and easily measured, there's clarity, isn't there? Right? We know where we stand when we walk into that year in performance review. Not liking walking into the year in performance review, but you kind of know where you stand at least. But when those things aren't clearly defined, when they're not easily measured, it, it leads to confusion, doesn't it? Leaving you wondering where you stand, not knowing when you walk into that year in performance review, if you failed and you're going to get fired or if you succeeded and you're going to get promoted. You don't know. And and so I want to ask this. What is it that you think God expects? What is it that he thinks he expects of you? What is it you think he expects of, of us as a church? What is it that you think he expects of me As a pastor, what is his definition for success? What is his metric that God measures? Well, we often measure success individually based on things like knowledge and activity, don't we? Church attendance and giving, how much and how often you read the Bible, how many verses you have memorized, where you serve and how much you serve. And we measure success of a church collectively based on the size and significance Right, the size of the building, the size of the congregation, how many you baptized last year, how many are in a small group, uh, how, much, uh, how much money you bring, how many ministries you offer. And, and then we measure the success of a pastor as well, typically on things like the size of their platform and influence, uh, the number of YouTube views, podcast downloads, Twitter followers, of speaking at conferences and writing books. It's, it's not only based on the size of the platform, but also saying the right things, making sure the pastor says the things I want to hear that make me feel good. But see, when the world is rewarding bigger and better and more and newer and cheaper and more efficient, it's easy to measure success of the church and our spiritual maturity by those same metrics that the world uses, isn't it? But the thing is, is when we fail to live up to the world's measure of success, either as a Christian or as a church or even as a pastor, it's easy to then feel like a failure, isn't it? Not just that you failed, but that you yourself are a failure. But what if, what if, what if God desires something else of us? What if God's looking for something that doesn't look like anything else the world's looking for? What we're going to see this morning as we continue in our series in the fruit of the Spirit, looking at the fruit of of faithfulness, is that what God desires of of us more than anything is not that we are successful in the eyes of the world, but that we are faithful in His eyes. Amen? Not successfulness, but faithfulness. 
He's not after speed and efficiency and productivity. He, there's no Six Sigma in the church, praise God. He's after slow and steady consistency. He's after continued faithfulness over time, or as Eugene Peterson refers to it, a long obedience in the same direction. And that direction is in pursuit of Jesus, isn't it? Faithfully following the way of Jesus in obedience to the words of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see this morning here in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents, a a parable that Jesus told just three days prior to his crucifixion. It was on Tuesday, and earlier that morning, Jesus, he had a run-in at the temple with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, calling out these so-called experts in Mosaic law for, for misunderstanding what God truly desires of his people. And as he left the temple on his way back to Bethany uh, for, the, for that evening, he, he crossed the Kidron Valley, and he climbed to the top of Mount Olives, and he began teaching what we now refer to as the Olivet Discourse, teaching uh, of the enduring faithfulness that God desires of his people over the course of the events that would begin to unfold over time until his return. And he taught a series of three parables, the third being the parable of the talents. And parables, um, they're just they're stories, right? They're stories that Jesus told for the purpose of teaching theological truth. And this parable, this story, it has four main characters. It has a master, and he has three servants. And Jesus tells this story over the course of three scenes. We're going to see the master's task, the responsibility that he gives to his servants. We're going to see the servant's response, what it is that they go and do. And then we're going to see the master's return, where he learns of what they've done. And then we're going to see how these truths that we learn in this parable apply to us. And so let's look at this first scene. Let's go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already. New Testament book of Matthew, my favorite gospel, the first in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chapter 25, near the end of it. And in this opening scene here, we're going to see the master's task. We're going to see this responsibility that he gives to his servants. Look down here with me, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went on his way. And the master here, rather than just shutting everything down uh, while he went away, he, he delegated responsibility, didn't he? He was entrusting his servants to oversee all that he had. He, and he was giving each person a, a task so that everything would continue while he was away. And a talent here, it's not like talent show, talent. Uh, he, he's talking here about a, about a unit of money. And, uh, and if it looks at first, like, it kind of feels like the third guy got, got slighted a little bit, didn't he? Like, you go, someone got five, one got two, he's got one. Um, if we think that the third guy got slighted, I think it's because we missed the value and the significance of what was entrusted to him by his master. See, a talent was the equivalent of about 20 years' wages for a day worker, right? Not chump change. And this means that this guy, he, he's likely only making like two to three talents over the course of his entire lifetime. He's now been entrusted with 20 years wages. 
And so if we think about that in today's dollars, roughly, uh, someone working full-time at minimum wage, which is $12 an hour in Illinois, that's going to be roughly $25,000. I said roughly because it's $24, but $25 makes for better math, trust me. Uh, so it's about $25. They worked a couple extra hours. $25,000 a year. That would make a talent roughly a half million dollars, right? That's what you would earn in 20 years, meaning the master in total had entrusted $4 million to his servants while he was away. Two and a half million to the first, right? Over two times what he would earn in a lifetime, one million to the second, and then a half million to the third, the amount that he would earn in about 20 years. And now, um, I'm not sure about you and what your bank account looks like, but um, I wouldn't view being entrusted with a half million dollars as being slighted in any way. So if you wanted to entrust me with that, I would be happy to do you a service. But the master, he wasn't playing favorites here. That wasn't why he divided it up differently. No, he distributed according to their ability. He knew what they were capable of, and he wanted everyone to succeed. He wanted everyone to do well with what he entrusted to them. And so after he divided that out, he went away. And in the second scene here, we see the servant's response. We see what it is that they did with what they had been given. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. Says he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents uh, made two talents more. Now um, the master's Uber had like not even arrived to take him to the airport, and these guys were already strategizing on how they were going to be able to make their master some money. And, and they weren't like day traders sitting in the air conditioning of their little home office. No, these guys they were out actively investing in businesses, likely even starting their own businesses. Right? These guys they were going big, they were going all in because unlike the people at Shark Tank, okay, on Shark Tank on that TV show, you got to go before Mark Cuban and all these other people and pitch your idea in hopes of receiving money. Side note: Did you know we put up a couple of Ring doorbells? Did you know that Ring went on Shark Tank and they got denied by everybody? Who's laughing now? Anyway, this guy, though, like Mark Cuban's already given him the money, and he gave him a lot of money. And they had work to do, but they did work. They did hard work, and they, they doubled what their master had entrusted with them, turning two and a half million into five and a million into two. But it says in verse 18, but he who had received the one talent, he went and he dug in the ground and hid his master's money. This guy's been given a significant responsibility. He was overseeing a half million dollars in today's dollars, yet he did absolutely nothing with what had been entrusted to him. He, he didn't even try. He didn't even try to keep up with inflation. The only thing he did was draw a treasure map with X mark in the spot where he dug the hole in the backyard. And that leads to the third scene and the master's return. We're gonna, he's going to come and he's going to check on how they did. Look down here with verse 19. It says, now after a long time, the master of those servants, he came and he settled accounts with them. And he, he wasn't away on like a short little weekend getaway. No, he'd been gone for some time, maybe even longer than the servants expected. And, and I think that says something. I think that's an important detail. I don't want us to skip by. Like, I think the amount of time that he was away, that he had entrusted them with this, it further signifies the significance of the responsibility that had been entrusted to their servants. And so after he returned, he came to settle accounts with his servants, and he wanted to see how they did with his money. And the first one, he says, Master, you, you so graciously delivered to me five talents, and here, I have doubled that. I've made you five talents more, and I'm giving back to you 
what is rightfully yours. I'm giving back all of it to you. And isn't that interesting? Like, let's be honest. We're thinking, he could have just as easily like, I made you three talents more and shoved like two talents in his pocket, couldn't he? That would have been his entire lifetime's wages. Don't, and you don't want to keep so much that he notices it and asks questions and you raise suspicion just enough to make your life a little easier, right? Just, just skimming a little off the top. That's not what he does. But like he could have said, like, you know, um, let's, let's call it a commission fee, right? A co- commission fee. Let's do that. Well, and it, by the way, I deserve it. I worked hard. I, I'm owed it. I did all the work anyway. But that's not what he did. He, he gave it all back. And his master, his master looking up from his journal, from his ledger, they didn't have QuickBooks then, right? So he would have had to write this one down. He, he looks up and he says, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. It's another word I don't want us to jump past because think about it. Like, let's be honest. Only someone who has a whole lot can call that much little. To the master, that was nothing. To the servant, that was lifetimes worth of earnings that he gave back. But notice the master, he didn't commend the servant for being successful. He commended him for being faithful. Not for how well he did or how much he earned, but for what he did. Knowing what was good, what benefited his master, and then doing it and following through and being faithful to fulfill what his master desired of him. And as a result, the master, he looked at him and he says, I will set you over much. He he was going to be entrusted with even more responsibility. Not because of how successful he was, but because of how faithful he was. And he said, enter into the joy of your master. He was invited into his presence to abide in his presence and to share in his master's joy. And the same was true of the second servant. He says, master, you graciously delivered to me two talents. And here, I've made you two talents more, doubling what it is that you've given me, giving it all back to you. And what I love is that even though he earned less than the first servant, the master's response is identical to the first, word for word, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Because while the second servant may not have been as successful in the eyes of the world, he was just as faithful in the eyes of his master. What mattered most to the master was that they did, was what they did with what they had been given. They were faithful with it. Then comes the third servant. The guy who got one talent, entrusted with a half million dollars, yet chose to do nothing other than bury it in the backyard. And he goes on now to share the why behind the what, if you will. And he says in verse 24, he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not snow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you, you can have back what's yours. He, he shared what he believed to be true of his master and how he felt as a result of what he believed, didn't he? He believed his master to be a hard man, that he was harsh and cruel, that he was mean and vindictive, that he was, he was exploiting his servants. He was, he was gathering harvest from seed that they sowed, that they watered, that they cared for. They did all the work. He did nothing. He just went away on vacation. 
And as a result of thinking that his master was a hard man, he was afraid of his master. And, and, and I can only imagine him thinking that. He's like, if I, if I try and I fail and I lose all his money, he's going to punish me. I'm going to be in big trouble. But on the other hand, if I do well and I make him all kinds of money, like I'm not going to see any of it anyway. And so instead of trying something, he did nothing. Not out of indifference or apathy, but out of fear. He was afraid. He was paralyzed by fear. He was afraid of not doing good enough. And he was afraid of not being good enough. Sound familiar? And we've all been in that moment where we are frozen by fear. Where we're afraid. He was afraid of who his master is. And he was afraid of what his master might do. And that fear of failure restricted his faithfulness, didn't it? So he gave it all back. Thanks, but no thanks. But not only that, he refused to take responsibility for his inaction, justifying his inaction by by blame shifting, didn't he? he? He's blaming his master for his having betrayed his master. It's like, it's not my fault. You made me do it. That sound kind of familiar? Like we flip back to Genesis 3. I think we heard this story once before, didn't we? Right, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they're, like, they did something they weren't supposed to, and they're hiding in the garden because they're afraid of God. And remember Adam's response when God confronts him and calls him out? He says, he says the woman that you gave me made me eat the fruit. Right? He, he not only blamed Eve, he blamed God. And so the master answers him in verse 26. He says, you wicked and slothful servant, you evil and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. You you thought that? Then, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest, at least. Right? He calls out the inconsistency of his argument. If you really thought that about me, if you really thought that to be true of me, wouldn't you have at least chosen the safest possible option? Done the bare minimum, investing to earn something rather than doing nothing? You know that phrase like, well, it was the least I could do. He didn't even do that. He didn't even do the least he could do. He's like, in fact, you lost me money. You didn't even keep up with inflation. What I gave you You're giving back to me less than what I gave you. And so he says in verse 28, he says, So take that talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has been, who has, will more be given and will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think of it like this. If we're going to go play basketball down in the gym afterwards, why would I pass you the ball if you're just going to stand there? You get the ball and you just stand there, frozen, not moving. You're not doing anything with it. Like, do something. Make a play. Just try something. Like, shoot the ball, even if you miss the shot, right? Drive to the hole, even if you get fouled, even if they don't call the foul. Or, or worst case, like bare minimum, pass the ball to someone else who's open so that they can make a play, even if you get the pass stolen. But don't just stand there. Otherwise, 
Like, we're just going to come over and we're going to take the ball back from you. We're going to steal it from our teammate and we're not going to pass the ball to you again. That's what Jesus is saying here in this story. All that was graciously entrusted to him was forcefully taken back from him. As he was cast out into darkness rather than being invited into his master's presence and sharing in his joy all because, not because of his lack of success, but his lack of faithfulness. He knew what was good but did not do it. And so if Jesus, if he told this story, if he told this parable to teach theological truths, what are those truths that we should take away from this? I think first we need to understand who the characters are in the story. And I'm guessing by now at least a couple of you figured that out. So if you were to guess who might the master be in this story, it might be Jesus. Good job. Uh, And the servants might be us. Way to go, guys. And so Jesus, following his, his sacrificial death on the cross, following his victorious resurrection, Jesus, our master, he went on a journey, didn't he? he? He went away, he ascended into heaven where he is this day. And it feels like he's been gone a long time, almost 2,000 years. But before Jesus left, he entrusted us, he entrusted his servants with a task, didn't he? A, a twofold task, that we are to carry out the Great Commission. Right, helping more people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. We are to carry out the Great Commission by living out the Great Commandment, loving God with our entire being and loving our neighbor as ourself. Right? The way we say it is pointing people to Jesus by loving like Jesus. Carrying out the Great Commission by living out the Great Commandment. And that responsibility... It comes with a sense of urgency, doesn't it? It's not a when I get to it. No, it's something that we are to go and do at once. Going at once out into the world. And and as we talked last week, not treating the world as our enemy, void of any sort of nuance or understanding, void of the fruit of goodness or kindness or gentleness, but going out into the world and seeing the world for who it is. A world that is angry and broken. A world that is scared and hurting. A world that is in desperate needs of God's love and the hope we have in Christ. Going into that world and sharing a gospel that is such good news, it cares for both body and soul. And sharing and reflecting that love of Christ that meets both spiritual and physical needs, knowing all the while That God is not measuring our successfulness, but desires our faithfulness. So if that's true, then how did we get here? How did we arrive at such a gross misunderstanding of what it is that God desires of us? Why is it that that feels foreign to us at times? Thinking that God desires successfulness over faithfulness. Fighting with the world rather than loving the world. How did we get here? I think it starts with a misunderstanding of who God is. Thinking that he's hard. That he's mean and vindictive. That he's cruel and exploiting us. Controlling us. And as a result, we're afraid of him. We kind of like, we see him over there and we kind of like walk over here. Meanwhile, God's on the present, so he's got us fooled. He's everywhere. 
there is no walking around God. But we think he's, he thought hard, we think he's hard and so we're afraid of him because I think it's because we misunderstand the purpose of, of, of these words, of the written word of Scripture. I think we misunderstand the purpose of the Bible, uh, words given to us by God to reveal to us who God is, that he is sovereign and faithful, that he is loving and merciful. It reveals to us what God has done, that God, he so loved the world. He loved the world so, so very much that he sent his son, his only son, to die for the world so that we might believe in him and not perish but have eternal life with him. It reveals to us who God is, what God has done, which comes out of who he is, and what God has promised to do. That Jesus, he's coming back, isn't he? Our master's coming back from this journey. And when he does, he is going to resurrect our dead bodies. He is going to right all the wrongs. He will restore all that is broken. It's going to be a good day, guys. It's going to be a good day. That is who God is. That is what he's done, and that is what he's promised to do. And so our misunderstanding, though, of who God is, it it leads to our misunderstanding of what God desires. When we think that God is hard, we are afraid of him. When we think God is hard, we think he's measuring successfulness, not faithfulness. It leads to our misunderstanding of what God desires. It leads to a fatally flawed view of discipleship, a view that rightly values behavioral transformation and absorbing information, but it is a view totally void of spiritual formation. It's void of it. A phrase that you might be wondering, what does that even mean? Spiritual formation is just a way of describing our pursuit and intimate relationship with Jesus. Peter Scazzaro, uh, he begins his book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, a, a book that we are going through as part of the way, our spiritual formation group here at Redemption. And side note, uh, in January, we're going to be starting another group and having an information session this fall if you're interested. He, uh, he writes in the opening chapter here, he gives us four fundamental failures, four key misunderstandings that prevent our spiritual formation and lead to a very shallow faith. And the first is this. If you're taking notes, why don't you write these down? Number one, he says, we tolerate emotional immaturity. We tolerate emotional immaturity, or worse, we detach spiritual maturity from it altogether. Um, Think back to what you have been taught, whether explicitly or implicitly. I think many of us have been taught at some point to distrust our emotions, haven't we? Don't, don't, Don't trust that. Don't trust the way you feel. I think we've been taught to hide and ignore our emotions. That's why so many of us, we are, we are master craftsmen at building closets to hide our emotions in, aren't we? We may not be able to build anything for real, but we can build those closets. I know we do because we talk about it every time you're in my study with me. I share my closet, you share your closet. It's a mess. But we've been taught how to do that. We've been taught that emotions are a sign of weakness in some cases. Think about Jesus. Just a cursory reading of the Gospels. You see, Jesus expressed emotions, didn't he? He cried, he laughed, he got angry, he showed compassion. Read through the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with David expressing all of the emotions. Because as Dan Allender writes in his book, The Cry of the Soul, he says, emotions are the language of the soul. It's how our soul speaks. 
It's how we express our soul. It is a language, though, that requires honesty about what we're feeling. It is a language that requires vulnerability in sharing what we are feeling. But hear me, it is a language that leads to the intimacy with God that we so desperately desire. It is a language that speaks to God. Skazara writes, emotional health and spiritual maturity, they are inseparable. And he says, it is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, remaining emotionally unaware, remaining emotionally numb. It will inhibit your spiritual growth. It will inhibit your relationship with Jesus. Number two, he says, we emphasize doing for God over being with God. And all God's people said, amen, I've been taught that. Isn't that kind of what we were talking about through a lot of Galatians this year? Thinking that God will reward our doing for him, that he will love us because of our reading, because of our praying, because of our serving, because of our sacrificing. When all God desires, what God desires most of us is our coming to him, our being with him, our abiding in him and living in relationship with him. That's what he desires. Number three, he writes that we ignore the treasures of church history. Uh, arrogantly ignoring the faithfulness of the saints that came before us, thinking, you know what? We're going to do this better rather than humbly learning from this rich 2,000-year history of the church. And number four, he says we define success wrongly. We, we define success wrongly thinking God desires us to be successful rather than faithful. And that leads to us measuring the wrong metrics, doesn't it? He says, we no longer measure our love for God by the degree to which we love others. Notice Jesus says, I, one command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love the neighbor as yourself. They're not two commands, they're one. And so we measure our love for God by the visible fruit of loving others. Love is to be our defining mark, Jesus said. That is how the world should know us, faithful to love and so he says, success according to Scripture, it's becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do. And doing this in his way, requiring the fruit of faithfulness, and according to his timetable, requiring the fruit of patience. And I think that's why I admire Eugene Peterson so much. Not for having written the message, which is incredible. Not for all of the books he's written, which are equally incredible, but but for his faithfulness, for truly living a long obedience in the same direction in pursuit of Jesus, for his loving others well, for his finishing well as a pastor. And so hear me, on this journey, you're going to stumble and fall. We're going to get bruised knees along the way, aren't we? We're going to bruise an elbow. We're going to mess up and we're going to fail. And when we do, rather than blaming others, Rather than blaming God, claiming I had no other option but to sin and let you down, God, um, let's go back and let's remember what it is that God desires of us most. It is not successfulness. It is faithfulness. And so here's our hope in those moments when we've fallen, when we've gotten lost. Our hope is that when you feel lost, it's sit in the stillness, quiet the noise, and listen. Listen for the voice of the good shepherd calling out to you. 
welcoming you back, inviting you into the joy of his presence. No matter how far you strayed or how long you've been away, no matter how much or how often you have failed, there's Jesus offering you forgiveness again and again and again, no matter what you've done. Because there is no sin the blood of Jesus cannot forgive, amen? Have you ever heard better news in your life than that? And while it seems like Jesus, he's been gone a long time, it's been almost 2,000 years, um, he will return. He said so. He has promised this to us. And when he does, he's, he's going to settle accounts. He, he's going to hold each and every one of us accountable for the way we lived our lives. And make no mistake, these last three verses show us that those who reject God's grace, those who have lived this life for their own glory, um, God deems as evil, lazy, and worthless, and they will be cast into eternal darkness. Not because they weren't successful, but because they were unfaithful. They knew what was good and didn't care. But for those who receive God's grace, who believe in His goodness, who respond not in perfect obedience, but in pursuit of faithfulness, pursuing what God deems as good. When Jesus returns and he settles accounts, when you look at his ledger, you are going to see every one of your debts paid off. There will be no red left in your ledger. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done, because of his pure goodness, because of his perfect faithfulness, paying off the debt that you accrued, paying it with his life, with his death on the cross. And then Jesus, he's, he's going to look up at you from his ledger. And he's going to say what might be the most beautiful words we'll ever hear. And he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little that I've given you. And now I will set you over much. As he invites you to enter into the joy of his eternal presence. Knowing, as Dale Bruner writes in his commentary, that the reward of fulfilled responsibility on earth is greater responsibility in eternity. I think sometimes we read Paul writing about rewards and we're like, what, what, what does that mean? Do I get a better room with a view? Do I get a better meal plan? What Jesus says here is our reward for faithfulness is greater responsibility in the new heaven and the new earth. We get a job to do. Do you know how excited? We've got more kids serving in our church right now than we have ever had. You know how excited those kids are when they're serving? They get a job. How many of you got greeted by George out of the back door this morning? You know how excited she was for her name tag? I got to tell another one of the kids that I saw this week at their home. I was like, hey, guess what? Pastor Rob's got your kid's name tag ready. She was so excited. There's a part of us that desires Jesus to give us responsibility. And the reward for a responsibility here is greater responsibility in eternity. As we live in his presence, as we experience his joy, carrying out that responsibility in the new heaven and the new earth, it, just in the way that we were to do in the garden in the beginning of the story 
And so I want to close our time here together in God's word. I'm going to close by asking you another question. What step of faithfulness is the Holy Spirit calling you to take today? What is that step of faithfulness? What is that thing that you know to be good according to God and his word that the Spirit is stirring in you and calling you to take? Faithfulness to the way of Jesus and obedience to the words of Jesus, not the way of the world, but the way of Jesus. How will the fruit of faithfulness that the Spirit is forming in you, how will that be visibly displayed for the world to see? And, and I, I don't want us to jump past this. I don't want you to just like store it in your brain and maybe think about it on the drive home. I, w- I want us to pause right now. And so before we take communion, I'm going to give you a moment right now to, to quiet the noise. Quiet the noise in your mind. Quiet the noise in your heart. Just listen as this music is played over you. Sit in the stillness of this room, in the presence of God, in the presence of God's people, and reflect as the Spirit stirs. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.